0: Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the Gospel of John. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to use the pew Bible in front of you. Uh, Cohen, I sound a little hot. There we go. That's better. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament. Just kind of go a little bit more than halfway, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll find John. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verses numbers. So chapter 1, big number 1, right at the beginning of the book. 35 through 51, those are the verse numbers. Quote, When I was 28 years old, I boldly declared myself a lesbian. This is the beginning of Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. Rosaria Butterfield was once a tenured professor uh, of women's studies at the Ivy League University of Syracuse. She was also a practicing lesbian, uh, a severe critic of Christianity, until one day she had what she describes as a train wreck conversion. This is how the train went off the tracks, according to her. At age 36, Rosaria set out to write a scathing critique of the conservative Christian movement known as the Promise Keepers. She wrote this critique for the local newspaper. Uh, kids, ask your parents when you leave what a newspaper is. They can explain. You you couldn't scroll. <laughs> She got a lot of mail in response to this article. Some of it was fan mail, some of it was hate mail. She received one letter in particular from a local pastor named Ken Smith. And she couldn't quite put this letter into either pile. It wasn't, it didn't approve of her article, but it also wasn't hateful. It it seemed to be kind and gentle, thoughtful, yet probing. At the end of this letter, the pastor said, hey, here's my number, give me a call sometime, and she did. And then after the phone call, she went and had dinner with their family, and she was very nervous about going to dinner with this pastor and his family. She didn't know what to expect. To her surprise and delight, when she showed up, the pastor served her a vegetarian meal because he had heard that she thought that the meatpacking industry was evil, and so he wanted to accommodate her conscience. She also showed up to a house in the middle of the summer that was cooled by fans and not an air conditioning unit because, you know, liberals, air conditioning is bad for the environment, that kind of thing. She sat there with the family as they prayed and she engaged them as they ate. She carried on thoughtful discussion with the wife and the children over dinner. She observed their love for one another throughout the entire evening. This is how she described it. When we ate together... Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Over the next several months, Rosaria developed a very close friendship with Ken and his wife and their family, and for two years, Ken's family brought the church to Rosaria, right where she was, in the middle of her rebellion. The church would engage with her frequently, discuss literature, doing book swaps. They would bake bread together. They would show up in the emergency room in the middle of the night when one of her friends had tried to commit suicide and they didn't know who to call, so they called the pastor because, you know, that's kind of his thing. One day, Rosaria began a research project on the religious right in America, Now, in order to do a good job, as the high-quality scholar that she was, in order to do a good job evaluating the religious right, she had to read the textbook of the religious right, which was the Bible. And she describes her desire to read the Bible like this. She says, I needed to read the book that had gotten all these well-meaning, good-intentioned, but very naive and foolish people off track. So she read the Bible, like a lot from front to back, over and over and over again. Not long into this time of research, Rosaria's transgender friend Jay pulled her aside in her kitchen and said, we need to talk. I'm worried. This is what he said, Rosaria, something is changing you. This Bible reading is changing you, and you need to tell me what's going on because I'm worried. I'm afraid that I'm losing you. Rosario was just as worried as Jay. I sat down and I had that panicked feeling that you have when you're not really sure if you're going to throw up. And I told Jay, I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading it a lot, and I'm really afraid. What if it's true? We're in big trouble if it's true. Rosaria was in more trouble than she knew. As she read scripture, as she consumed God's word, she was beholding the glory of Jesus. She was being drawn irresistibly into his light. And she wasn't ready for that. She knew that following Jesus was going to mean something significant for her life, She was going to have to die to herself. She was going to have to lose something. She didn't want that. She says it like this. I was thinking, do I want to be changed? No. I like my life. I like my girlfriend. I like my house, thank you very much. And I even like my wonderful career. I'm standing in the rushing water of the world. And yet I have my toe in another world because of all this stupid Bible reading. I fought against it with all my might. And then one day, Rosaria began to go to church. Kind of. She wouldn't go into the church. At first, she would just pull up to the church parking lot and sit in her car. She says it like this. I had my Starbucks coffee, my New York Times, and maybe an article I was working on in my truck with the gay and lesbian bumper stickers on the back, and I would park and I would watch these enormous families pour out of their 15 passenger vans and the kids would just keep coming out. and It was astounding. And she did this for a while until one morning, she just couldn't sit in her truck anymore. I woke up one morning. I emerged from a bed with my lesbian lover. I got in my truck with my bumper stickers and my butch haircut and I showed up. It wasn't always easy for Rosaria to follow Jesus. She was a bridge between two worlds in many ways in this church, and you know what happens to a bridge? It gets walked on. She struggled, but she persevered. But sometimes she would go up to her homeschool mom friends in the church and say, Listen, I had to give up being gay to be here. What'd you have to give up? Rosaria's conversion is an immensely powerful testimony to the gospel. But it's also a good case study of the power of bearing faithful witness. Ken Smith loved Rosaria enough to bear witness to her, to to reach out to her, to grab her, and to take her into the presence of Jesus. And now Rosaria is bearing witness to Jesus through her writing, her books, her testimony, her evangelism. As amazing as this story is, it's actually not that uncommon. It's just a story that has been popularized in some circles in our time, but our, our church this morning is full of people who have stories just like that. You can swap out some of the names and some of the particular sin patterns. You can swap out the ethnicity, the lived experience, the, the amount of education, but the story is the same. There's always a Ken Smith and a Rosaria Butterfield in this morning's text. We're going to see this same story with a Philip and a Nathaniel. And instead of a well-to-do lesbian feminist college professor, we're going to consider the conversion of a poor fisherman and some of his friends and family. Some of the details may differ, but the story is the same. So let's read it for ourselves. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again Jesus was standing with, excuse me, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter or rock. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethlehem, excuse me, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom, the, uh, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Amen. Father, we need your help this morning to receive all that you have for us in your word. You promised us help. You promised us the helper. So Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds. Amen. Uh, That's a lot of text. I want us to walk through it to make sure we kind of understand what's happening in the narrative. And then we're going to go back and dig in and and see what this narrative really means for our lives. So let's, let's, let's walk through this. So, at the very beginning of our text this morning, right in verse 35, we encounter John the Baptist again. And if you remember, John the Baptist is not the same John as the John who's writing this. And John's whole deal is that he bears witness to Jesus. And if you weren't here for that, you don't know what it means to bear witness. When you bear witness, you're just trying to point to someone else and say, what they're saying is credible. And that's John's whole thing. He points to Jesus and he says, this is the guy, the promised one, the Messiah, the one we've all been waiting for, our great and final hope. This is what John the Baptist does best. He points away from himself and he points to Jesus. What's so significant about this is you have to remember that John the Baptist had disciples of his own. The disciples that he, he says, hey, look at Jesus, they were his. He had been pouring into them. He had been training them up. He had been dealing with all of their issues. But when Jesus shows up, John goes, oh, hey guys, yeah, love you. I know you've learned a lot from me. As great as this time together has been, it's time that you stop looking at me and start looking at that guy. Stop listening to me. Start paying attention to him. John refers to Jesus in our text this morning as the Lamb of God. That's one of many messianic titles that are applied to Jesus in this morning's text. John seems like he's on a roll. He's trying to, within the space of like 20-something verses just show you over and over again that Jesus is the, the promise fulfilled. In verse 41, he's the Messiah. In verse 45, he is the one of whom the prophets wrote. In verse 49, he is the Son of God and the King of Israel. Verse 51, he is the Son of Man. Each of these titles is loaded with significance, you know, pregnant with meaning. And we could probably spend like six weeks just walking through all of them. But the point that John is trying to convey here is, He's here. Regardless of what you call him, regardless of whatever title you give him, the promised one, the one that we've been waiting for, has finally arrived. And uh, John's disciples understood that. And so in verse 37, you see them tender their resignation to John the Baptist. Right? They're like, oh, okay, all right, we're going to go with Jesus. And then in verse 38, we see Jesus... Doing what Jesus does. A a typically probing question. He says, What are you seeking? He doesn't say, Hey, glad you guys are on the team. Let me help you with your transition from John and his ministry to me and my ministry. Man, we're going to do great things together. Thanks for believing in me. None of that. He just goes, What are you seeking? And as you know with Jesus, a question is never really just a question. And then the disciples say, we're on Team Jesus. We want to go with you. Where are you staying? And then in verse 39, Jesus invites them to come and see. And as is typical of Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, I'm just right down the road, you know. I got a room at the Ramada. He doesn't give them a simple answer. Instead, he invites them on a journey. He says, come and see for yourself. And so they do. And then in verse 40, we see that one of the disciples, whose name is Andrew, after he spends some time with Jesus, after he really comes to see who Jesus is, he goes and he grabs his brother, Peter. And I can just imagine what this conversation is like with Peter. He, hey, man, I know this is going to sound crazy, right? There's been a bunch of false messiahs you're probably thinking, I'm out of my mind. But listen, man, the Messiah is here. I found him. I just stayed with him. You need to come with me right now so that we can go see him together. And then in verse 42, we see that Peter actually listens. He goes to Jesus. And then apparently, Jesus, knowing something of Peter, uh, responds to Peter showing up. He says, ah, so you're Peter, (laughs) You're, you're the guy. Okay. And then as soon as he says that, he gives him a new name, right? He gives him the, the Aramaic name Cephas, which uh, means rock. And in, in my mind, is like the greatest burn in the Bible, right? Like Jesus just burned Peter so bad because if you know anything about Peter, he's not a rock at all. He's more like algae, you know, he's, he's weak, he's crumbly. We're going to see how that comes into play as we walk through the story together. But the story continues. Verse 43 tells us that the next day, Jesus finds a man named Philip. He doesn't say, hey, can I, can I sell you on, on my ministry? You know the Messiah? Can I, can I convince you that I'm him? None of that. He says, hey, you, you're coming with me. Let's go. Follow me. And Philip follows him. He does the same thing as Andrew. And then after spending some time with Jesus... Philip does the same thing as Andrew. Andrew went and grabbed Peter. Philip goes, oh, this is amazing. The Messiah is here. I have to go grab Nathanael, uh, also known as Bar- Bartholomew. But yeah, well, Nathanael right here. You can see that in verse 45. I, I hope you're just kind of following along in the text as we go. But in verse 45, you see, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what I love about this text is that John lets us know, the readers, that Nathanael is not all in. He's not a simpleton. He's not duped by this religious fervor. He goes, the Messiah, you say, from Nazareth? Is that right? Nathanael is honestly expressing his doubts. And that would make sense, right? Like, if you were in ancient uh, Israel, Jerusalem would kind of be like New York, right? And then you would have like a middling city like Sephoris. Maybe we would say that's something like Nashville or Birmingham. And then you would have Nazareth, which would be like Flint, right? So, you know, lest you be a little harsh on Nathaniel, just imagine that someone came to you and was like, dude, the Messiah is here. And you're like, What? really okay where'd he come from and you're like flint (laughs) and flint michigan not that that's better and he's like no flint like you know you just drive like right to the edge of decatur flint and nathaniel he's skeptical but philip doesn't engage him in his skepticism he says come and see i'm not going to argue with you i can't prove this to you just come and see for yourself and so nathaniel goes And then, as soon as Jesus lays eyes on Nathanael, he begins to work on his heart. He says, Here comes the one in whom there is no deceit. Which is kind of like a highfalutin biblical way of saying, You're a straight shooter. I like that. I can deal with that. You have doubts, you have concerns, you don't know if the Messiah could come from Nazareth. I can work with that. But Nathanael, he is suspicious. And he's not ready to fall for some spiritual huckster. And so he looks Jesus square in the eyes and he says, do you know me? And then Jesus says, yeah, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. You remember that time that you were sitting under the fig tree and you felt totally unseen? I saw you. Now, we don't know what happened under the fig tree. We don't know why this was so significant. What was happening? I don't know. Whatever was happening under that fig tree must have been very significant for Nathaniel because as soon as he hears Jesus say these words, all of his skepticism is gone. All of his doubts evaporate. And he says, you really are the Messiah. And then in verses 50 and 51, Jesus goes, huh, you're impressed by that. Man, you have no idea. You have no idea what you are going to see. And then he talks about Jacob's ladder, which if you know much about the Old Testament, Jacob's ladder kind of represented this this way of approaching God from heaven to earth. And Jesus says, you're going to see me being the ladder. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. Nathaniel didn't know what that meant either. You probably won't really come to know what that means until we get to the very end of this gospel together in a couple years. And that's it. That's the narrative of the text for this morning. So now that we have a good understanding of what's happening in these verses, let's let's drill down and see what they mean for our lives, okay? Four points for you this morning, (coughs) note-takers. Excuse me. Four points. Point number one. Bearing witness to Jesus. Point number two, beholding Jesus. Point number three, encountering Jesus. And point number four, believing in Jesus. If you didn't get all those, I'll give them to you as we walk back through the sermon. So point number one, bearing witness to Jesus. We've talked about this a lot lately, bearing witness to Jesus. Remember, it's John's whole thing. What does it mean to bear, like practically, what does it mean to bear witness to Jesus? Does it mean that you have to give out those Bible tracts, you know, like when I was in the Longhorn bathroom and somebody left a Donald Trump billion dollar Bible tract on the toilet paper dispenser? Is that bearing witness? Do we need to be able to give people the gospel in 60 seconds? Do we have to be able to recite all ten commandments in order to bear witness? Do our kids have to be on their best behavior all the time? Bearing witness to Jesus is actually pretty simple. Uh, Don't confuse simple for easy. But bearing witness to Jesus is simple. Bearing witness just means that you point people to Jesus. You tell them who he is and what he's done for them. And that's what you see in this morning's text. John says, here's the Lamb of God. And Andrew says, Yeah, come see the Messiah. And Philip says, The promise has been fulfilled. Now, sometimes bearing witness, it's super easy. You got to love it when that happens. It was easy for John the Baptist. John was just standing there with his disciples. Jesus walks by and he just goes, Oh, there he is. Listen to him, follow him. And sometimes that's how it is for us as we try to bear witness to Jesus. It's just. Easy, God has just made these providential appointments where all we have to do is say, oh, you've already come into contact with the Christ, let me just help you with that. But sometimes you have to go out of your way to bear witness to Jesus, like Andrew and Philip do in this morning's text. They have to go and grab them and drag them, and they have to listen to their arguments. Nathaniel, oh, really, from Nazareth? I don't know. Sometimes being a faithful witness to Jesus is a real hassle. Sometimes we have to sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure, our freedom. Maybe what's worse for some of us in this modern age, we have to sacrifice people liking us. Our popularity. Yes, I'm going to invite you to church again. Sometimes we have to risk getting on people's nerves and creating relational tension. I was having lunch with a brother this week who said that before he got saved, his wife was constantly dragging him to church. He didn't want to go. While he was there, he was not happy to be there. But his wife was doing it. She was being like the brothers in this morning's text. It was not easy for her to do it, but she did it. And by God's grace, one day her husband came to see Christ as the Messiah. Now, this man's wife, in dragging her husband to church, was basically doing what Andrew and Philip are doing. You see, they became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and their immediate response was, I have to go grab someone. I have to tell them. I have to bring them back to Jesus. They weren't just going to hope that somehow, some way, the stars would align perfectly and and maybe, you know, Andrew, maybe my brother Peter will come into contact with Jesus. No, he wasn't going to risk that. He was like, no, listen, buddy, you are coming with me today because this is real. Maybe a good time to pause here and ask how long it's been since you've been willing to inconvenience yourself in this way to bear witness to Christ. How long has it been since you felt compelled to make the kind of sacrifices that you need to in order to bear witness to Jesus? How long has it been since you felt so enamored with Christ, so so convinced of the reality of of who he is and what he can do for this world, that you've said, i got to drop everything I'm doing, and i got to go tell somebody about this. I don't care if they get mad at me or if they get frustrated. I don't care if my reputation gets a little... It messed up at work, or if the people at the gym don't like me because I'm the Jesus freak. I don't care if I get on my neighbor's nerves. As I was thinking about this week, I, this week, I remember when I first got saved. I remember how I was an evangelism machine. I would evangelize my friends, my family, my enemies, literally my enemies. I was a gun-toting drug dealer one day. I was a Christian the next day. And then I would go back to the dude who promised he would kill me if he ever saw me again, and I knocked on his door and tried to share the gospel with him. Now I'm reticent to share the gospel with someone that I see at the supermarket because I'm worried that they might think I'm a Jesus freak. What has happened? When I first became a Christian, I couldn't help myself. I had to go grab people and say, don't you see what I see? Isn't this real to you? You're going to die one day. You don't care about that? You can't see that? You, don't, you think this just came into being by accident? I had, to sh- I had to be in people's faces about it, and now, I don't know, man. And I wonder if, if maybe that's true of you. I wonder how real the gospel is to you today. I wonder how real Christ is to you. I wonder how much the reality of Christ is pressing in on you so that you feel like you have to go and bear witness to people even if it costs you something. And if you say, well, Sean, actually I do think I'm struggling with that. I think I've lost some steam. How do I fix that? Well, you just do what these guys did. These guys beheld Jesus. They, they, they came under a sense of weight about the reality of who he is and what he came to earth to do. And in light of what they beheld, they went out and bore witness. So maybe if you don't feel that way, maybe it's just because you're not beholding Jesus as you should. You're not making time for him in your home. You're not reading scripture. You're not gathering with the saints. You're not feeding your soul. You're feeding yourself with everything that this world has to offer you. You don't even have time to behold Jesus. None of this is in my notes, so i got to keep going. My prayer for everyone in this room this morning is that they behold Jesus as I bear witness to him right now. I don't know everyone in this room. It's a small room, and I still don't know everyone in this room. I don't know if everyone here knows Christ. I don't know if this is going to be the last time that you darken the doors of a church. So while you're here, pay attention. While you're here, behold Jesus as he is lifted up before you. Don't spend the sermon scrolling through your phone. Pay attention. I invite you to be like Nathaniel. To examine his claims, to express your doubts and criticism to him, to be honest, to be vulnerable. To wrestle with God. To engage with God and to pray. And to ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear what he has to say about his son. Before you walk out those doors. Point number two. Beholding Jesus. Beholding Jesus. Everyone who goes and joins the military has to go through something called basic training. And In basic training, you learn how to be a soldier or a, an airman or a seaman. And uh, one of the basic skills that you have to learn uh, in army basic training, I doubt this is true of Air Force or Navy, you have to learn how to throw a grenade. <laughs> you know, true of the Marines, right? And, and one of the things that you have to learn when you throw the grenade is you have to throw it far enough so that you don't stand in the blast radius when it goes off, right? Uh, I remember when I was in the army, a chaplain tried to use that image as an inverse metaphor for Jesus. He said, Jesus is like a grenade. But when he goes off, you're not in his kill radius, you're in his life radius. Man, that was corny. But believe it or not, that... That really bad illustration actually stuck with me. I heard it 14 years ago, and I thought about it this week as I was preparing my sermon, and I thought, I'm going to take that and make it a little bit better. Uh, If you want to get people saved, you have to get them into Jesus' radius, his life radius, if you will. Right? If you want to get people to behold Jesus, which is the necessary first step to believing in Jesus, you have to get them close enough so that they can actually behold him in a meaningful way, right? At the beginning of this morning's text, John the Baptist tells two disciples who are with him, behold, and they do. But not only do they behold him, they begin to follow him. Now, what's interesting is the text seems to convey this idea that they're following him at a distance. They're not right there with him. And then Jesus turns around as they are following him at a distance, and he engages them he not only engages them, but he draws them in, right? He says, come and see, right? He's saying, you're too far away. You need to have a closer look at what's going on here. So he invites them to come stay with him. Guys, proximity can really change our perception of someone. Think about physical beauty. Think about how many times you've observed someone at a distance and thought, wow, they're, they're really beautiful, And then you get up close to them and actually you see that their silhouette was more pleasing than the reality of who they are up close. Or maybe there's been a time where you've looked at someone at a distance and didn't find them particularly beautiful at all. And then as you got closer to them, you thought, oh, wow, actually, there's there's a real stunning, there's something here that I couldn't see at a distance. You can think about this relationally. Think about how many times you've had a perception of someone that was way off because you knew them from too far away. You only knew them through the internet or what somebody had told you about them or through brief brief interactions with them that maybe didn't go well. But then when you got to know them up close and personal, you realized, oh, yeah, I actually had to be near you to make a, a good judgment about who you are. That's how it is with Jesus. You cannot do a good job evaluating his claims, his identity, or his beauty at a distance. In order to truly behold Jesus, you have to get up close and personal. Andrew understood that. He was following Jesus at a distance. After he spent time with Jesus, he came to believe in him, and the first thing he did was go get Peter and bring him into Jesus' presence. He didn't say, yeah, the Messiah is here. Grab your binoculars. We're going to stare at him from, a, from far away. He was like, no, we're going into his presence. Philip, didn't let himself get bogged down in a debate about Jesus. Why? Because he knew that that would keep people far away. He knew that if he could just get Nathanael into close proximity, that Jesus could do the work himself. He knew that Jesus would engage with him and reveal himself in a way that would be not possible at a distance. Some of you here this morning have been investigating Jesus at a distance. You've been evaluating his claims from very far away. And I want you to know that that is not good enough. Jesus says it's not good enough. He invites you, like the people in this morning's text, to get close to him, so close that you can see the whites of his eyes. If you've been listening to what other people have to say about Jesus, what other people have to say about Christianity, what other people have to say about the Bible, but you haven't been engaging with Christ yourself up close and personal, then I want you to know that any judgment you render about Christ is inaccurate. More than that, it's foolish. I've been watching some YouTube videos, Sean, and man, I'm convinced I can't trust the Bible. Maybe you should engage with it yourself. I've been reading history. I've heard about the Crusades. I can't trust the Christians. M- maybe you should engage with us yourself. Sean, I don't know. I've, I've heard all this stuff that Jesus taught. Jordan Peterson, he, he talks about what Jesus says. I've been watching some of his videos. Yeah, maybe you don't evaluate the claims of Christ through the teachings of a person who doesn't even believe in him. Maybe... You believe what Jesus says by reading what he wrote in his word. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, that's all well and good, but that doesn't even make sense. The disciples, they were there with Jesus in person. And Jesus isn't here with me in person, so how can I possibly come into close proximity with him? How can I get close to Jesus? Well, friends, I've got good news you are in close proximity to Jesus right now in this room. Not in the sense that like God is everywhere and so I'm close to God because God's everywhere. Not in that way. I mean in a very specific, concrete way. Before leaving earth, Jesus told his disciples, I will be with you. And when he said he would be with us, he didn't mean that in a figurative way. He meant I will really be with you. How? Where two or three are gathered together in my name. The church. In the Bible, the church just means those who come together. It's also spoken of as the body of Christ. What that means is that whenever we come together on earth, Christ is present with us here. So if you are in this room, you are in close proximity to Jesus. And you are close enough to evaluate his claims. As you interact with us this morning, with these Christians in this room, you should know that we are imperfect, but we are his. And when you see us, you see him. We are his representatives on this earth. When you sing our songs, when you pray our prayers with us, when you listen to this sermon, you are partaking in the life of Christ. You are hearing the word of Christ at this very moment. Which brings me to point number three. Encountering Jesus. This point just follows right out from the second point. If Jesus is here now, if you are having a close encounter with Christ, then he is revealing you, excuse me, revealing himself to you. Which means that he's working on your heart right now. Maybe it doesn't feel like he's working on your heart. There are a bunch of reasons why that could be. Maybe you're distracted. If so, I'd encourage you to pay attention. Maybe your heart's burdened with whatever you came in here with this morning that you just can't stop thinking about. Jesus can fix that. Instead of you just thinking, mulling that over in your head over and over again, trying to fix it, why don't you listen to what Jesus has to say because he's the only one who can really solve that. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I don't keep up with what's happening in like TV these days, but remember all the old cop shows, there was always a scene where the criminal or the, the suspect would be taken into the interrogation room, right, and the interrogation room always had a two-sided mirror, and so the, the cop would be interacting with the criminal on one side and then on the other side would be all the other cops, the, the detectives and stuff, the DA, and they'd be standing there watching, you know, observing, that kind of thing. I want you to know that as you encounter Jesus this morning, you're not looking at him through a two-way mirror. Jesus is not like a frog cadaver that's that's pinned to a board in your eighth grade biology class. As you encounter Jesus, you're not just sitting there poking him and prodding him and evaluating him as he just kind of lays there dead and lifeless. The thing about Jesus is, is anytime you interact with him, anytime you behold him, he is simultaneously beholding you. In this morning's text, we see that. We see that as people come near to Jesus, as they have this intense and intimate experience with Jesus, that Jesus engages them. As they behold Christ, Christ beholds them, and he begins to probe their hearts He can do things like perceive their character at a glance. He knows things about them that they don't know about themselves. He asks the kinds of questions that they don't even know that they need to be asked. Everyone who comes into contact with Jesus finds that he touches their hearts like no one else can. He's not a trained therapist. He's not a supremely wise sage. He's not even an investigator who's done a really thorough background check. He's something else altogether. Only God can see into the heart of man the way that Jesus does. And what's shocking to men like Andrew and Nathaniel is that as they set out to study Jesus, they find that they are being studied by him. That reminds me of Russell Berger in his testimony, a former elder in our church He tells the story of being raised as a rabid atheist, being trained by his father to go to school and engage with those crazy evangelicals and talk them out of their faith. And one day later in life, he was reading the Bible, and he found that as he was reading it, Christ was changing him, much like Rosaria Butterfield. He set out to read this book, and he was surprised to find that the book was actually reading him. He set out to investigate Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm going to be the one that asks the questions here. Encountering Jesus in this way changes everyone. For Peter, this change was made clear immediately. Jesus gives him a new name, right? And this is a pattern that you see all throughout the Bible. Anytime someone comes into contact with God and God is going to use them, he's just like, oh, uh, I'm going to change your name. And that's what Jesus does with Peter. And he may not look like a rock right now, and he's not going to look like a rock really throughout the rest of his ministry. But him being a rock is not dependent on him doing all the right things the right way. It depends on his belief in the one who is the true rock. Point number four. Last point. Believing in Jesus. At the beginning of this morning's text, John asks his two disciples, Excuse me, Jesus asked the two disciples of John, What are you seeking? What are you looking for? I want to finish out our sermon by calling everyone in this room to be honest with themselves and to ask themselves that same question. Jesus is asking you that question this morning What are you looking for? What is it that you want? Why are you here this morning? It's a Sunday morning. Most of you have to be up very early tomorrow. You got to go to work work to a job that you probably don't care for very much. You probably came home from work on Friday and did a whole bunch of work around the house on Saturday. Not really what you were looking forward to do, but the lawn's got to be cut. Your kids are driving you crazy. The news is getting your blood pressure up. Yet you woke up this morning and came into this building why? I'm afraid of some of the answers. Some of the answers in the Christian South are because I want a communal bond. Some of the reasons why people come into church on a Sunday morning in the South are because this is where I have my business connections. Maybe some of you are thinking, you know what, I just it's been too long since I've been in church and I want my kids to have the same moral training that I had and I think the church is the best place for that. Maybe you're here this morning because you think the church is a good place to soothe your burdened conscience. You're feeling really guilty about something, and you were hoping to hear something about grace this morning. Maybe you're trying to find a husband or a wife. Huh? Christian mingles hard. It's kind of like a real-life Christian mingle right here. Maybe you're here this morning because someone invited you and you just felt like you couldn't say no again. Maybe you're here this morning because well, you don't really know what you're looking for. You just know that you're looking. And maybe you're sitting there like, I wish you would shut up. I'm not looking for anything at all. I just want to go eat. I remember feeling that way. I remember sitting in church high being very unhappy to be there, wondering when we would stop singing these songs, stop praying these prayers, when that guy up there would be quiet so that we could go. None of that matters now. I don't know what was going on in your heart when you came into this room this morning. The only thing that matters right now is that as I stand before you, I am bearing witness to you about Jesus. For the last 50-some minutes, you have heard me bear witness to you about Jesus. If you never hear the gospel again, and if you never heard it before you got here, you cannot leave this room without saying, I have not beheld the Christ, because you have. The only thing that matters right now is that Christ is engaging you. He is probing your heart and he is asking you what are you looking for and if the answer to that is anything other than Jesus you are looking in the wrong place and you will be ultimately unsatisfied you can look in drugs yeah anybody who does drugs know a little bit gets you a little ways but then you got to keep doing more if you're looking for satisfaction in men and women man listen they're going to let you down If you're looking for hope in your career, that's probably not going to work out the way that you thought it would. Tom Brady conquered the world of football. A reporter says, how does it feel? And he goes, honestly, not as good as I thought it was going to feel. I was kind of expecting more when I got to the top of the mountain. But this morning, I stand before you and I tell you the one that you should be looking for is Christ. Because he is the Lamb of God that can take away your sins. And you need that. Because you are a sinner. And your sin must be dealt with by a holy and righteous God. And the good news of the gospel is that he loves you and he has made a way for your sins to be dealt with. He hasn't left you to try to figure it out on your own. I'm calling on you this morning to behold and to interact with and to receive and to believe in the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. The king of all the earth, the son of God, the son of man, the one who is before all things and after all things, and the one in whom all things hold together, including every single cell in your body as you sit there in that pew this morning. He is kind and gentle and merciful and tender and completely just, and he will by no means let your sin go unpunished. He is a gentle savior and a righteous judge. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the hope of the nations and He stands before you today calling on you to follow Him. Will you? Will you follow Him to the cross where you have to lay down all of your sin and die? A painful death. And will you follow Him to the grave? where you will be buried with him and will you follow him out of the grave into newness of life and joy everlasting if you have questions about that you can find me or any member of our church and we can talk after service let's pray Lord as we began this time together in your word we prayed and we asked for help and now we, we thank you because we have received your help. You heard our prayers. You responded. And we love you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing in Christ.